so today I'm going to cover yoga and so just out of curiosity who, who's done does or has done yoga almost everyone okay so if you look at the history of yoga I have no doubt that it's kind of 2,500 to 3,000 years old. When it was first written down in about 2,500 years ago, something like that, it was written down really in two places. One is a book called the Bhagavad Gita, which I'll come to in a moment. And the other is a book called the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which are seen to be the root of modern yoga. So here we are in a yoga studio, so it's very appropriate. Now, if you go back and you read those, it says nothing about what you would expect it to cover in either book if you look at modern yoga. So if you came here, what you would see is a lot of people engaged in a meditative exercise, basically. And that the amount of focus on exercise and the amount of focus on meditation varies from person to person and also from teacher to teacher. If you went along and you saw some people practicing yoga 2,600 years ago, they'd be sitting and meditating. So in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, there are only 12 asanas, and asana is a pose, you know, so like the cow or the um, cat or the plough or whatever it might happen to be. That none of those existed, they were all seated. The whole purpose of it was to assist meditation. So if you read the Bhagavad Gita, which is very probably an originating text, I, I suspect that it actually predates the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali because they're a commentary, whereas the Bhagavad Gita is a story. So it's very likely to have been passed down orally or even written down prior to the earliest written accounts that we're aware of. Sanskrit is 4,000 years old. So we're only talking about 2,500 years ago. So the Bhagavad Gita might have been around for a long time before that. And the Bhagavad Gita is a fascinating book. It's in the center of one of the two great texts. The, uh, I think it's called the Mahabharata. And it actually refers to a battle. And in this battle, it's, it's the battle to end all battles in the war to end all wars between these two great dynasties. And so if you imagine thousands of warriors and two ranks of elephants stretching as far as the eye can see in each direction, and in the center you've got this no man's land, which I mean, if, if you were to walk out there, unless you were specially protected, uh, you'd be killed instantly. But the protagonists in, in the Bhagavad Gita are quite well protected because the chariot driver is Krishna. And 
interestingly, there's a, there's, we're going to learn something about the link between English and Sanskrit words here. Krishna means the same as Christ. It's the manifestation of the divine Godhead on earth. I need to clarify, I am an agnostic. I'm not a religious person. I'm just explaining what the, the text says. And in the chariot is Arjuna. And what Krishna is doing is teaching Arjuna yoga. And so if I just open up Kindle and we go to the Bhagavad Gita, then in there are various chapters. And one of them is the yoga of meditation. So Krishna explains that yoga is various different concepts. There's a thing called the yoga of renunciation. Now when Gandhi wrote about the Bhagavad Gita, he was writing about this chapter, which is the, yo uh, the yoga of renunciation, where you separate your actions from the outcome. Okay, so what he says here, in, it was his Krishna speaking to Arjuna, he says, the resolute in yoga, surrender results and gain perfect peace. So in other words, what you do is you, you decide what your actions are going to be, you stop expecting an outcome and you focus on the actions themselves. He says that's the way to gain perfect peace. And the irresolute, those that attach their actions to an outcome, are bound by everything they do. So what that means, if you've got a lot of expectations, that's the story of your life. Are your expectations delivering what you want? And that's a story that will go on forever. So then he explains how to meditate. This is you know, nearly 3,000 years ago. Closing his eyes, it, it refers to him because in the Bhagavad Gita, yoga was the philosophy of the Indian warrior caste. Closing his eyes, his vision focused between the eyebrows. Interesting that. Making the in-breath and the out-breath equal as they pass through his nostrils. He controls his senses and his mind, intent upon liberation. When fear, desire and anger have left him, that man is forever free. This is the, the apex of the meaning of yoga, is to separate yourself from the outcomes. It doesn't stop you from performing the task as well as you possibly can. And this is key to meditation. If you're meditating for an outcome, forget it. Forget meditating for an outcome. You're meditating to become familiar with your mind. Familiarity with the mind, that's all it is. If you want to reduce your stress, make your mind calm and still and clear like a mountain pool, always be mindful and present, that's just gonna get in the way. That's the Bhagavad Gita. Another text is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. 
And here the concept of an asana is introduced into world literature. It says here, an asana is a steady, comfortable posture. That's it. Asana means the posture that brings comfort and steadiness. So what's happened with modern yoga, what you see, if you were to come here and, and watch the yoginis practicing, is everybody will be on a kind of spectrum between an almost pure meditation and an exercise, which can often be uncomfortable, especially if you just start and everybody's fitter and more flexible than you, you know. Another book that's worth reading, which is everybody's favorite yoga guru, this guy called Sadguru, that's S-A-D-H, not sad as in unhappy, <laughs> sad as in a sadhu, which is like a wandering teacher in India. So you go, you go to India, you see these sadhus wandering around and they look more than anything else like new age travelers, kind of Indian, actually our new age travelers are a, a, a British version of sadhus. He talks about yoga, he is a great teacher of yoga. Here's what he says about yoga. So, Hatha yoga does not mean standing on your head or holding your breath. It's the way that it is done that makes all the difference. He talks here about how when he taught Hatha yoga, the students experienced calmness and liberation and bliss. And why is it that when you go to a yoga studio, you don't experience this bliss? Where is it? And he say, you know, people have experiencing tears of ecstasy. He says, because the yoga is being imparted as an end to itself rather than as a preparation. That Hatha yoga, which is what most yoga students practice when they're doing their asanas. He said, in the world today brings peace for a few, health for others, but unfortunately it's a painful circus for many. This can be fine for someone whose aspiration is only peace and health, but if you're looking at yoga as a means of transforming yourself, Hatha yoga needs to be approached in its classical form. The, the key to it is that effectively it's a meditation. So modern yoga is all an aid to meditation. But when your practice of yoga becomes so much a part of you, it becomes a meditative exercise. But that takes a fair amount of time to achieve. I would say longer than if you just sit down to meditate. So would you, get, would you get the same gains from practice? Maybe some people would, maybe some people would, but I think that'd be a very small group, which is what he clarifies here. So it brings this peace to some people, but for a lot of people, it becomes a difficult practice. So that's an insight into the origin of yoga, what it really is, and also an insight into the modern interpretation of it, which is 
sometimes useful, but sometimes often unhelpful, actually. How does that impact the meditation practices? Well, we've taken the key concept, which is the recognition that seeking to gain an outcome intervenes in gaining an outcome. It's, it's, this is your trying. <laughs> so how do you avoid trying? And there's all sorts of semantic um, information from a variety of sources about this. But I've, as ever, simplified it. What you do is you replace trying with waiting. Yeah. Stop trying and instead wait. And what you're waiting for? What you're waiting for is the sound of the bell moving through time. So you're, what you're doing is you're noticing the sound of the bell moving through time. Do that again. Just waiting calmly as you notice the sound of the bell moving through time. Just do that once more. You're just noticing this tiny, tiny little sliver of time because the, the bell rings for about 15 or 20 seconds. But you're only aware of a tiny little sliver of time, about 300 milliseconds. So it's like watching the second hand move on the clock. If you either close your eyes or look down past the tip of your nose, you can notice all sound moving through time. You can notice the movements in the room moving through time. You can notice my words moving through 
time. And if you notice your belly, just at the point where the belly meets the chest, you can notice the belly rising and falling. And this is where we practice the waiting. You're waiting for the belly to rise and fall. As the belly's falling, you're waiting for it to rise. As the belly rises, you're waiting for it to fall. Place your tongue gently up against the back of your top teeth. You can also notice the coolness and warmth in the nostrils. So while you're breathing in, and the breath is cool, you're waiting for the end of the in-breath. And then while you're breathing out, and you're noticing that the breath is warm, you're waiting for the end of the out-breath. happening, you're noticing the breath moving through time. The same as what happens when we're listening to the bell. And then whatever thoughts there are, if you have an internal dialogue, There are a lot of things happening in the internal dialogue. There's the meaning, there's the words, there's the inner sound, because if you're listening to the words of your dialogue, there must be an inner sound. And the words in the mind are moving through time.
So if you take charge of your inner dialogue, and you can repeat after me, I, repeat in your mind, am witnessing my thoughts moving through time and now stop repeating in your head and all of this is here all the time the movement of the breath the rising and falling of the belly the coolness and warmth the sound words and your thoughts And there's something else as well. There's whatever is aware of that. Notice that you can notice your thoughts. In the same way you can notice my words. And notice the feeling of being pushed into the ground. The, the sense of your body weight. Your connection to the energy that's connecting you to the planet. Gravity. And how it feels. Your balance. Notice your balance. Notice your body. Notice that you're aware of where your hands and legs are, whether your back's straight, 
if you place your if you're sitting up if you place your elbows by your sides and find the most comfortable and stable place to balance your head that's yoga an asana is a comfortable and stable posture and you're doing that so that none of the external experience interferes with your awareness of the internal experience So you have all of these tiny, 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 minuscule elements of your present moment experience. Sound, thoughts, words, coolness and warmth, comfort or discomfort. Breathing in normally, breathing out, relaxing your jaw, back and sides of your neck and shoulders. Tongue against the back of the top teeth, gently in contact with the sharp part of the bottom teeth. If you're an experienced meditator, not everybody finds this easy, just bring your awareness to the space between your eyes. Just notice that spot. many different sensations in the body but they all change except for that place when you notice the space between your eyes you notice your internal experience and your external experience at the same time It's the way we balance the inner and outer. Just being aware of that space. And you can be aware of your body moving with the breath. And at the same time, aware of whatever sounds there are. 
and what's happening around you. So lots of experiences. Notice if you bring weight into them. So you're just witnessing them. They change. So I'll just leave you for a few minutes. What you focus on is totally up to you. Space between your eyes, coolness and warmth, the thoughts, sounds, the belly rising and falling. Anything. And from time to time your mind will wander, you'll notice and you'll just come back and focus on one of those elements of your present moment as you notice it moving through time. And to assist you every so often, I'll just quietly sound the bell, just in case your mind drifts off.
if the mind's busy, you're noticing the belly rising and falling. Using your inner voice, you just say in your mind, rising, falling. Because while you're using your inner voice for this, it can't be chattering away. Just repeat it in your mind, rising, falling. Breathing in, noticing whatever you can smell and taste. The sensation of sitting, feeling of being pushed into the ground. And in your very, very own time, whenever you're ready, gently return your attention to your surroundings. Lots of reasons that people give up meditation. Quite high up the list is they say their minds are too busy. So what is there to stop your busy mind intervening in your awareness of the breath, for example? Nothing. There's nothing to stop your mind intervening. Let's say you've got uncomfortable emotions. There's nothing to stop the uncomfortable emotions from intervening. And the reason for that is because that's what it's designed to do. It's designed for all of your experience, all of your external experience, your day, the experiences you have, the people you know, the, the problems you have, your neighbors, your career, your boss, your mother-in-law, your daughter-in-law, your son-in-law, your partner, the white van drivers, there's nothing to stop that entering your experience. Okay, and that's by design. And there's a word for it in yoga, according to Sadhguru. And the word is vasana, not asana, vasana. So what a vasana is, is a smell. So this is what he explains. What you consider to be your personality, 
the bundle of traits and tendencies that you are, is because of the information that you've gathered unconsciously. These tendencies have been traditionally described as vasanas. And the word vasana means a smell. Depending on what type of garbage is in the bin today, that is the kind of smell that will emanate from it. Now you can see why he's everybody's favourite guru. Depending on what type of smell you emit, you attract certain kinds of life situations to yourself. For example, if you sit down and you notice your resentment at some outcome, somebody's done something, white van driver cut you up at the lights, boss has been unfriendly, um, partners had a tantrum, whatever it happens to be, there's resentment. You sit down and you notice this vasana, which is actually what it is, it's like a, it's like a backdrop to your day. You know, so you're having a great day and somebody comes along and messes it up. And they can mess it up because it's hanging around. It doesn't go anywhere. So you don't have the tools to process the thing that's happened. What meditation does is it just sits you down and it says, here you are and here's all the garbage of the day. In fact, if you're new to meditation, at some point you're going to experience all of the garbage of a lifetime. And its purpose is for you to learn how to be aware of it. Oh, there's, there's that bit of resentment because that person made me feel this way. To be able to sit through it, very important not to make it an endurance activity. So let's say you're really suffering don't sit in your meditation and suffer, but notice that you're suffering and come back and meditate at a better time. Always fix your roof in the sunshine. Yeah. So you want to meditate not when you're feeling most stressed, but when you're feeling most powerful, because that's the place that you will learn to get comfortable with your inner experience. And that's the place you'll get learn to get comfortable with the rough edges of interactions with other people. And that is actually what it's all about. You notice what's in you that you see in other people and you notice in other people what you see in you. But we don't know that's there because we've never looked. But when you meditate, there's nowhere for it to go. So this is, this is like a a wash, rinse, repeat cycle for all of the vasanas of your life. And it takes years because it's taken decades to collect the garbage <laughs> and it has to be taken out of the bin and dispensed with one piece at a time. So subsequently it's going to take a while to clean it all. And the, the best way to work, I mean, what he's talking about here actually, is uncomfortable emotions. The best way to work with uncomfortable emotions is through comfortable emotions, enjoyable emotions, gratitude, compassion, kindness, 
care. These are the things that will help you to do the wash, rinse, repeat cycle on whatever's happened today, whatever anybody's said to you, whatever's happened in the past, whatever you've accumulated over a lifetime, wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. That's each meditation session for a while becomes that. The way to use the comfortable emotions is through a practice of loving kindness, which is a thing called metta bhavna. I'll teach it to you. So if you get comfortable, some of you know this, but it has to be practiced. Compassion, I have to practice it over and over and over and over and over again. Because our culture is going, be selfish, be selfish, be selfish, be selfish. To, to cope with that, we have to be compassionate, be compassionate, be compassionate, be compassionate. So this is how we do it. You just get yourself comfortable. And come back into this place in the sound of the bell. which is also the same place as is in the breath, which is also the same place that is between my words and between your thoughts. So just get comfortable, stable and comfortable posture, whatever's comfortable for you. If you're sitting, it's useful to have your elbows by your side and look for the most comfortable and stable place to position your head on top of your spine. Notice the breath rising and falling. And what we do is we capture our thoughts. Yes, so most of our thoughts are spontaneous. They arise in our experience. We're sitting quietly and there's a thought, and there's another thought, another thought. So what we do is we capture them using the inner voice and we repeat this mantra. All a mantra is, is something that we say in our mind. You can chant it, but we don't do chanting. When you, when you say it, because you want to be able to do it anywhere, that's why we don't do chanting. I mean, you can chant anywhere. But, you know, you'll get plenty of space on the bus if you did. And what you do is you say in your mind, may I be well? May I be happy? May I find 
peace of mind. May I be well. May I be happy. May I find peace of mind. There's a little switch on the side of your head. It's got two channels, AM and FM. AM is against me, FM is for me. What you're doing here is you're getting that dial, you're clicking it from against me to for me. May I be well. May I be happy. May I find peace of mind. And you just repeat that. And at first it's just words. And notice that the words in the mind are in the present moment. May I be well. Notice them moving through time. May I be happy. May I find peace of mind. Now bring to mind whichever being it is that comes closest to giving you a warm feeling. This is, it could be a friend, it could be a partner, it could be a member of your family, it could be a neighbour, could be a colleague, it could be another creature, your pet. You hold that being in your mind. The image of them, of them or the sense of them. And you say in your mind, may they be well. May they be happy. May they find peace of mind.
now bring to mind a difficult person. Not your arch enemy, just somebody who's irritated you, said something or did something thoughtless or inconsiderate, something irritating, pushed in front of you in a queue, was snappy or rude or unhelpful, whatever, tiny little thing. Hold that person in mind and say in your mind, may they be well, may they be happy, may they find peace of mind, may they be well, may they be happy, may they find peace of mind. yourself to mind again, whatever image you have of yourself, however you see yourself, whatever arises when you think of self, me, I that I am, whatever that might happen to be, and you say in your mind, may I be well, may I be happy, may I find peace of mind. gently, gently allow yourself to be aware of your surroundings. And when you separate yourself from outcomes, you do this in meditation by waiting. Notice, notice I didn't tell you what you're waiting for generally. Yeah. So what that does is, is the mind becomes focused in the present moment because it's waiting to know what it's waiting for, waiting to wait. I teach meditations that are infinitely more complex than that, have done. And you can you wait for your thoughts. There you go. Quick, what's the next thing you're going to think? Wait for it. Quick, what is it? What's it going to be? The thought. If that doesn't silence your mind, nothing does. In the Bhagavad Gita, they say that we separate ourselves from outcomes. There's the action and there's the outcome. It doesn't mean your life is pointless. What it is, is let's say 
your outcome is to go and live in the United States. So there's loads of things that you need. So I need, I need the sort of job that would get me a visa. If every day when you go into work, it's going through your mind, I need to be really good at this job because otherwise I'm, I'm not going to get my visa, I'm not going to get... You, your mind will make your life a complete misery because every little look from your boss or your manager or your trainer or whatever it happens to be is mixed with your expectation. If it goes away and you say, well, here I am, I'm doing this job and now I'm going to do it to the best of my ability for its own sake, comes a different thing, you've separated yourself. So that, that, was the, that was the message of the Gita here, which probably came later, and almost undoubtedly so, in the, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, in the commentary by Swami Satichananda, who's the author and a very a renowned Hindu scholar, if you detach yourself completely from all the things you've identified yourself with, you realize yourself as the pure I. So what is the pure I? The pure I is only ever a question. You're noticing your thoughts. What is it that's noticing the thoughts? That's it. Now the answer isn't an answer, it's a question. What is it that's noticing my thoughts? noticing my emotions, noticing the breath, noticing the present moment. If everything, you know, body, thoughts, expectations, goals, desires, wants, needs, likes, dislikes, beliefs, everything we get connected to. If we, the more we become aware of that experience of being the witness of our experience, the pure eye, the less it matters. And it says in there that when you realize yourself as the pure eye, there is no difference between you and me. Yeah. So the separation that we suffer from in our culture, where people are different, you're all different to me, you're all separate from me, you've got different goals, I need to compete with you, I'm, there's something to be gotten from you, etc, etc, etc. There's suffering, right? If, if you want a bin full of vasana, that's where it comes from. But you can't indoctrinate yourself into feeling connected. All you can do is recognize that each sense of separation is suffering. Same thing. More separate you feel. Imagine you feel separate from everyone. You know, there's just you against the world. How does that feel? Look at the other side. Let's say you're part of a closed, loving, caring group of people who will all die for each other. How does that feel? You get to choose, right? You get to choose with everything you do and everything you say. And, but you can't indoctrinate yourself, right, I must be compassionate. I must stop saying those things. <laughs> I must stop doing that. I must not see myself as separate. All you do is you look. Where is it? Where is it? 
what is it, what is it that's witnessing my experience? That's, that's yoga. This, this is yoga. And the vasana, that's the suffering. So they say yoga is union. Yoga has the same root in the same way that Christ and Krishna, same root. Yoga has the same root as yoke. And a yoke is what you put on a bullock to make it pull a cart. And the reason you do that is because it's painful for the bullock to not go where you want the cart to go. So what you do is you pull the rein, it causes the bullock pain on one side of the neck and it moves over in that direction because it doesn't want it, it's uncomfortable. So what is it union with? It's union with the universe. And what it's telling you is one thing. Your suffering is because you aren't following the flow of life. Instead, you're trying to go your own way. So the union is the union with the flow of life. The suffering you experience, the unsatisfactoriness, the vasanas, that's you pushing against the yoke. You can do it for a while, but eventually you'll give up. That's yoga in a nutshell.